Hey, this is Thurston. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good evening. You are tuned to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. Coming up shortly, we will have host T. Hetzel with an interview with author Alice Walker, recorded earlier today.
Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's November 5th, 2014, and today Alice Walker is here on campus to give the Zora Neale Hurston Lecture presented by the Department of Afro-American and African Studies and the Center for the Education of Women. Earlier today, engineer Liz Wasson and I headed to DAS to speak with Alice Walker. Alice Walker is one of the most prolific authors of our time, known for her literary fiction, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Color Purple, her many volumes of poetry, and her powerful nonfiction, including We Are the Ones We Have Been Waiting For, published by The New Press. Alice Walker's latest two books are also published by The New Press. The World Will Follow Joy, Turning Madness into Flowers, New Poems by Alice Walker, and The Cushion in the Road, Meditation and Wandering as the Whole World Awakens to Being in Harm's Way. And now for the conversation. Today we are here in uh, the DOS building, uh, our mobile unit um, of living writers. We've gone on the road, we've, we've left the studio, and today I'm talking with Alice Walker, um, who is here for the Zora Neale Hurston lecture um, that will be happening today at 5.30 p.m. at Hill Auditorium. Um, Alice, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's it's an absolute delight to be sitting in the same room with you. You probably hear that all the time, <laughs> so I won't go go on. <laughs> um, well, let's if you don't mind. Um, it's the show is is living writers, mm -hmm. and so um, I'm that. Yep, you you qualify <laughs> quite nicely. Um, and you're here to give the Zora uh, Neil Hurston lecture today. Um, Zora Neale Hurston has played, a, I think, a, a big part in, in, in your life as, well, part of your life as a writer. Um, could you talk a little bit about perhaps the how and maybe 1973 um, when you were finding her, her unmarked grave? Well, uh, it was very uh, disturbing that she had been buried somewhere, nobody knew where, uh, and that um, also her books were out of print, and I discovered one of them that I loved, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and I just set out to try to find her, and I did, I think. Uh, I was in a big field full of weeds, and I stumbled into a hole that looked like it was the grave size, you know, of a a place where somebody would have been buried. and How were you able to research it, Alice? Like re how research you, what? Like research that this field could be oh, the field. I, was, I, I just went around the community and asked everybody who had known her. And, uh, and, and they told me that she had been buried in that, um, that cemetery. And that, that part of the cemetery was the old cemetery. It was called the Garden of the Heavenly Rest. And that there were only two graves out there, and one of them was was hers. I'm not sure why that's so, but anyway, that's mm. that's how I I found what I think was her grave. And in any case, I put a marker there, and uh, it's still there. Mm. Do you manage to get back to it at all, Alice? I don't. I don't. I went back. Uh, you know, the, now there's a humongous Zora Neale Hurston festival every year, and you know, like a hundred thousand people go there to this little town. I have no idea where they put them, 
but is um, it in Fort Pierce or is it in more of her her town? Eatonville. Her her, her grave is in Fort Pierce, but her her town was uh, Eatonville. So that's where the festival is. So people come and then they go to to the grave site and all of that. Uh, but her, uh, you know, her her legacy is uh, restored and um, affirmed. I should say affirmed because you can't really say it was restored because it was never really, um, you know, it was always tenuous. She had so many detractors and people who were envious and misguided. Can we talk a little bit about when you were? young and writing, like very young, when you were um, maybe even as young as eight. Were you writing poems then, Alice? I was. I was writing poetry from the time I was two. Two? I mean, I don't know whether I was actually writing them, but I was learning them because poetry is a very strong tradition in my community. So my first uh, poem was, I think, two lines, and it was Easter Lilies, Pure and White, Blossom in the Morning Light. That's it. And everyone loved it, and I fell in love with reciting poetry. And my sister, who was in college, would come and recite poems to us. And, and I I just loved it, so it stayed with me. And was it something as, for when when would you write? When you were, were you, would you, um, well, later. Well, how, or how was the, because I, I almost feel like with your, and this, I hope this isn't presumptuous to uh, say, no. but your your life, um, the writing is this the skeleton from which everything I feel, like discoveries or the way of thinking about the world, um, it's all centered with writing. Well, my mother claims that when I was crawling, <clears throat> she would look for me and I would be behind the house. I would have crawled away from everybody and I would be sitting with my back up against our little shack and I would be writing in the dirt with a twig. And that's my favorite description of myself as a writer, I think, because, you know, that's how writers should be, I, I believe, in some part of myself, that you should just be, you know, out there somewhere with your back pretty much to everything else and concentrating on what it is that you are meant to be doing. And in my case, it seems that writing was what I was meant to do. And so you were back there with a twig. Mm -hmm, Writing in the dirt with a twig because we couldn't afford, you know, paper or pens. Uh, And later on, I would scribble with a twig or whatever I found in the margins of a catalog because you could get a catalog out there in the country when you couldn't get anything else. And was one of those Sears robots. We used it or? for everything, including toilet paper. And I'm sure this is true of so many people in the country. Do you think because of that that story that your, your mom told you, that that was one of the reasons she, it seems like she was a champion of your education to make mm-hmm. sure that you would go to school, that, that you had opportunities that at that time... Um, weren't easy ones. She could see in me something she couldn't see in herself, which is a a miracle, actually, to be able to do that. Uh, And she saw that I had this, this whatever it was. I mean, I was going to say gift, but who knew what it was? But it was definitely there and a calling. And she, bless her heart, supported that to the best of her ability. Alice, for for your um, looking, then kind of going through a little bit of your 
biography here. Then you went to Spelman College and for a couple of years met Howard Zinn, uh-huh. who was um, to become one of those sort of important people in in how you thought about the world, perhaps, in this div- Well, Howie and my father were born in, they're both Leos, and they were were very similar, actually. My father was, in in his own way, an activist. He was the first uh, black man to vote uh, and not be killed in our community. Uh, He voted for Roosevelt, uh, who, who, um, you know, brought the New Deal because people were suffering very badly. And so when I got to Spelman, there was Howard Zinn, also an activist, and I really connect them. You know, I didn't for a long time because they seem so dissimilar, but they're not. They're not. They're both, you know, Howie comes from a, uh, he, he died a couple of years ago, but he came from a working class family, very poor, uh, had a chance to improve his situation by going to the army. Uh, where he became a bombardier, and uh, you know, he he and my father were very much um, determined to change society, and my father was very courageous, and so was Howard. Yes, I can't. It's hard to imagine what that must have been like—the bravery to to go and vote when you know that the people who have done so before you were killed for it. And there were three white men with shotguns sitting waiting for him to try to vote. He was remarkable. You know, I didn't get along with him later on in life for other reasons, but I never, um, you know, had anything but admiration for his courage. That is really, that's, that's, so in some ways, maybe that's those examples that we don't even realize. Those Mm -hmm. are models that you now under, how you understand the world, like why you have courage to stand in Mm -hmm. the places that you, you well, you, you are, you, you come from your parents and your grandparents and whoever else created you, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, it's possible that you have inherited some of that. And maybe even beyond um, our our own sort of DNA, when you're thinking, because I keep thinking, Alice, when I think of you, I think of this idea of the universe, like, and even some of like uh, one of the poems in um, one of your most the most recent collections, "The World Will Follow Joy," turning madness into flowers. Um, but there's there's an example. There's a poem um, where you you're talking with. Um, John and Yoko Lennon's um, son, Sean Lennon, mm-hmm. and you you begin by saying something. I've known you before you were born. Yes, and I I come from a community where people knew me before I was born, and that's very rare and really wonderful when people say that to you, because they really know you, you know. Uh, and I I felt that way with Sean Lennon, even though you know they were living in New York and. We were living wherever we went, Mississippi, I guess, uh, during those years. But there's a spirit of, um, you know, just radical uh, compassion and, and activism and courage uh, that is recognizable. And you you see that, uh, hopefully, in the children. In all children? Well, in the children who have inherited that. You know? Do you think it's, it's the possibility that all all children have uh, inherited courage? 
and possibility of, of uh, no, I don't. I think that uh, people inherit different things. Some people inherit a lot of meanness and viciousness and stinginess. That's just who they are, and we can accept that, you know. But other people don't have that. They don't necessarily inherit that. When you're talking about inheritance, Alice, mm -hmm. it makes me think of what you did when you won the prize. The, is, is it the John Lennon Peace Prize? Uh -huh. When you were awarded that and you, you gave all the, 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 the prize winning to um, an orphanage. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that moment? Because that, that figures into um, this book, too, The World Will Follow Joy. There's mm -hmm. a lovely photograph of two little girls yeah, yeah. well, uh, I wanted to adopt a child. I wanted to adopt an African child. And I actually had met an African child that I really wished this moment I had adopted, even though, you know, I'm not sure I would have been all that great as, you know, a, a surrogate mother. Uh, but anyhow, I decided that I could, instead of adopting a child, uh, given my life way, you know, I wouldn't always be there. I would adopt an orphanage. And by adopting an orphanage, I could help support a lot of children and the people who run the orphanage. And that was years ago. And the orphanage is doing well. And um, the children are, are getting very good marks in school. And mm -hmm. they're doing, in some cases, as good as or better than the children who are in the regular schools. And this is in a little place called Kisi, Kisi Kenya. Mm -hmm. It seems like you are truly a citizen of the world. Well, where else would I be a citizen of? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes people feel like they need to be of only one place yes. and sort of. But, but you seem like you. I know that you value, for example, your garden as well. Mm -hmm. Like you, you do, you connect to the land and mm -hmm. in this way. But it also seems like your your openness and your moving, you're moving within and around the world. But that's exactly why I can do that because I'm rooted in my own garden. I can be rooted in everybody's garden because what that means is that you want everybody to have a garden. You understand gardenness, you know. And what is that? Like, what is understanding gardenness? Well, that is essential to us. You know that Monsanto should be run out of town on a rail, because it's trying to destroy people's connection to the earth through their gardens and through the food they eat and the crops they grow. Uh, so I understand that coming from a little place in the middle of Georgia that is like nowhere. You know, it's just. You, you pass it and you blink and it's gone, but uh, it, it's the same everywhere. Everybody needs to be connected to the land. There is something about when you have your hands in the soil, too, isn't it? Like, that's peaceful. Because at least my grandfather, he used to um, have a very small patch of a garden mm -hmm. in a row house in London. Mm -hmm. um, and to him, that was... I think that was his meditation. That was his place to be where he could be more himself than mm -hmm. at, at the work or at the pub. or Right. Well, it's paradise. You know, when you, if, no matter how small it is, uh, it permits you to see 
you know, the whole of paradise because it's like a portal into the rest of paradise to have a garden. And that's why we should never permit governments to destroy other people's gardens. You know, their fields, their crops, their animals. It's the most heinous thing you can do to people. So do you think that maybe in some ways, like one of the things the government might be able to do is support more family-owned farms or find a way? Not this government. It's not interested in that. And this government is interested in controlling the farms and wiping them out as small farms and making huge, more and more huge agribusiness so that they can make a lot of money for someone like Monsanto. That's what this government is about. Yes, I remember being shocked um, by reading about the Kafkas, the, the, where they have these large farms and consolidating where all these the cows and they have no well anyway we don't need to speak about these grim grim things right now um let's talk more about writing alice because um that's a way is it is it fair to say that writing is the the way of you see the world in some way uh or understand well it's it's, it's a craft (laughs) writing is a craft And like any craft, if you uh, pursue it with diligence, it opens everything because it's it's a key, you know, it's a key and it's a tool. And therefore, you you know, you're equipped. Often people go out into the world and they're not equipped. So they they have no way of actually seeing where they are. And in some way, it's it's almost um, as if they're they're born in a you know in a body and in a place and in a time where they have no no um, no ballast they have no no real grounding you know and I think more and more people are being born that way because the ground is literally being taken from under their feet they have nowhere to be and so they're just bodies you know I mean they there's nothing much in the culture that would I mean thank God and goddess and all the divas for meditation because you can sit in a corner somewhere and connect to your spirit. But for most people, without a guide, that's impossible. So they they think that they're just the little body that they're in, and it's just a little prison, you know. So they, they never get beyond that. And it seems important to find a, a certain s- stillness to be able to, I don't know, even have a moment to recognize your breathing or your body or... Well, yeah. Or, and then recognize it in someone else as well. You do. You have to have quiet and you have to have stillness and, and peace. And But people fill it up with something. People cannot be quiet often. It's the hardest thing for humans to just be quiet. How do you find, or do you have a balance between the writing and because you you write you've written I mean you've written everything, Alice the um, the n- novels, poems, essays, um, your blog posts, um, open letters. Um, how do you find? Is there a balance between the writing? Um, and being out in the world uh, as an activist, it, it feels like the writing is also 
an instrument of that activism too, <clears throat> but also as a way of purely telling stories. They're not separate uh, because writing is its own activism. And it would be very difficult for me to engage politically or spiritually in something without examining it. And writing is the way to examine what you are experiencing. So it's very useful. You know, it's, it's a very good thing to have in your toolbox. When you're writing, is there, can, you, can you remember a moment where something changed for you that you had thought to be true, and then in the writing of it, and kind of trusting the writing of it, you, f you found something different or new? Well, that would happen if I try to write something before it's ready. If I try to write something before it's ready, chances are it will never be anything but something stillborn. How do you know about when it's ready then? Like, what, what's it's your process? It's just a talent. It's just something that you grow into knowing. Uh, and I, I trust it. So I, I rarely try to do anything until it's just really pouring out of the hand, you know. Uh, so I, I save myself a lot of stress. I used to talk about how, you know how writers are depicted writing on paper and then balling the paper up and throwing it over their shoulders? I, I never had that. I mean, I I just think of that as a waste of trees. I do rewriting in my head, most mostly. Uh, or I'm now using a computer, which is a bit like doing it in my head because you just erase. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I'm very Aquarian, and, and therefore this age of communication uh, with computers and things like that, that we, we click, you know, because of that ease of, of um, forming, shaping things and discarding what you don't need without any mess, you know, without throwing away paper. And so the Aquarian part is this, is it the fluidity? Is it something about No, it's, it's being at home in air, in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and communicating across time and, and uh, space, you know, through, through emptiness. I mean, it, it's, when you create something, it's such a miracle that it, it, it comes at all, really. I mean, where does it come from? Who knows? There it is. <laughs> and, and your part, really, is just to be amazed and joyful. Uh, and glad that it arrived, like a letter, you know. I mean, because, but really, it's just magical. That's so good to hear, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> because I feel like so often, because I, I teach in a writing center, and mm -hmm. so often it's about acknowledging the struggle <laughs> uh -huh. of writing, you know. Yeah. And, um, but, but you know what? The struggle will be so much less if people can just wait. That's why writing in schools is not necessarily good for you. Who needs a deadline? <laughs> you know, really. Whose idea was that? That's right. You know, who needs an assignment? Life will give you an assignment. You know, you'll give yourself an assignment, but nobody outside of you should be saying you have to do this or that. It's absurd. 
And part of what you can do maybe is to be ready or to be open. Exactly. And that's why you need a practice. You need, you know, walking, you know, sitting, you know. Gardening. Yeah, something, a practice of whatever sort. So, so Alice, for you, with so you never do. You, well, I know that you've you've given um, your archives to Emory University. So I know you do have a paper trail. I do. I do. <laughs> well, pre-computers. A huge one. And so, did when you, I guess, was did you have a group of notebooks that you used to go to? I like used to a, write in a notebook. Because could they be gardens of a sort or? Yeah, well, they are, um, but the but I also had an actual garden always. You know, I, I moved to the country many, many years ago and to a little patch of land that had no water, no electricity, and I wanted a garden. Now, how would I have a garden without water? So my neighbor, who lived on the far hill over the way, ran uh, hoses and pipes and more hoses from her house. She had a well to my, up the hill to my garden. And I had the most gorgeous garden full of snapdragons. And that's that was first things first, because now it sounds like you didn't have water. You didn't have water or electricity in your in well, the house? Or did you just no, go I, find I, the land for the garden first, Alice? I, no, I found the land for the view, for the space. So I could look out into infinity which is clearly where I need to look. <laughs> and so beyond the snapdragons uh -huh. is infinity. Right, yeah. Hmm. And we all have that, but you'd be amazed at how many people never realize it. They think they're just stuck in some wherever little thing they are in, the body, the room, the house, the town, you know. And in a way, that means that, you know, all the magic is lost on them. And then they turn to television. Which is distraction. I try to tell myself it's also storytelling. <laughs> well, but in sort of this you know, new medium. Every, I, like, you know, I like Mad Men. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so I, it's not true confession, yeah, Alice so, Walker. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not a purist. I mean, I like what's good and what's well done, and you know, uh, House of Cards. I think is great, and and many other things. But Suspenseful. I'm saying that as a, as a, you know, as something that sits in your house day in day out, you know, programming you, is treacherous, and people have to understand that that is so. Because they are, they're, that sense of being able to create from a place that is, you know, pure and open to infinity is stolen from you. You know, that, that you, you grow to have no idea of that, the power of that place of emptiness inside. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's amazing. I mean, that's why people go to monasteries. That's why they do retreats. They're trying to recapture uh, and nurture, you know, that, that autonomy um, that they have, you know, the, the spiritual autonomy, which a culture like this one, which is so noisy and so crass, you know, and, you know, so commercial, it just kills. It has no use for that. 
in in the the cushion in the road and in the world will follow joy. I feel like there's moments when you're you're talking about being an an elder, like what that what that means, like the 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 power of that. And maybe it's because you've you've have this sense of the and this these different connections of what maybe some people don't really you have a sense of what they've lost even if they some people might not know because the culture is so quick or could I, I, hmm not that you have to have any answers Alice I was gonna say what can people do <laughs> well but people can slow down you know it's not impossible to disengage and to choose you know do you realize how much of life people are flooded with that they don't choose mm. Or you just you sort of are happy with letting others make these you choices. Give up. You, yeah. you give up and you feel helpless and like it's going to happen anyway. And you know why not go along? But uh, you know ultimately that means a kind of death for you. You know, and and out of compassion for yourself, I think you would want to begin to be slower and more attentive, self-attentive. And that's not selfish. That's finding. Uh, I don't care if it's selfish. I mean, don't be don't be stopped by you know fearing that something that you need means that you're selfish. I see it as you needing something that you need, and having sense enough to pursue it. Alice, what are you? Um, what are what are the things that you're you're writing now? Do you well? I'm writing to... mostly on my blog, which I love. I really enjoy it. It's it's a way to be really um, connected to you know a lot of different causes and uh, thoughts and books that I I like to share with people and movies and uh, plays and uh, you know just whatever really strikes me. I can write about it. It's basically, you know, writing in the dirt with a twig. I writing feel, in the air. Right, a writing in the air. And, <laughs> and it's, it's, it feels very free. Uh, I don't permit comments because I find most of the comments that people make just totally beneath them. I don't, no matter who they are, they should realize that most of the commentary that they make is really beneath them as human beings, that they've lost if they ever had it you know, any sense of grace. So I don't do that, and that means that I can then just express what I feel and make an offering of it, and you can take it or leave it. I love that word, the offering. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what it is. I mean, if you're given a gift, and writing is a gift, like music or painting, you know, it's, it's offered to you. And, and you take it and you make something out of it and then you offer it to whoever, you know, is qual is qualified, you know, to, and by that I mean, you know, whoever ever really deeply cherishes, you know, knowing something, you offer it to them. And it, it makes me think of everything in its own time as well. Like maybe people will find different pieces of your writing mm -hmm. and they'll connect to it in a different way mm -hmm. at different times 
No, and and they can, you know, if if they're not really feeling political, they can just, you know, not pay any attention. But I think it's dangerous at this point not to pay attention to political things because, uh, you know, we have before us the necessity to transform what is here that's not working and in a terrible way is not working. And we're basically looking at the end of the planet if we don't uh, acknowledge just how bad things are. And no amount of escapism or feeling like, you know, being privileged Americans will mean that we will escape. We won't escape. You know, as long as Fukushima's happen, uh, you know, and they will continue to happen, we are pretty much done for until people you know, get it that we have to radically change. I sometimes think it would be great if we could really boost NASA a bit more and shoot everyone up into space a, a couple of times, just or once at least a lifetime, so that they can look at the Earth. I know. In that way. Yeah, well, they've been there, they say, and they did look at it and they had a, an epiphany, but it hasn't helped. And I, you know, I know that many people think of that, you know, experience as being transformative for a lot of people. But in my view, you shouldn't have to leave Earth to love it. Well, that that makes me think of your garden and looking into infinity. Mm-hmm. Is is that what you mean, Alice? Well, I mean, why would you have to leave Earth to love it? I mean, Native Americans haven't left Earth to love it. They loved it while being here. You know, and all the indigenous people who, you know, love the earth, they didn't have to go anywhere. They saw that it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And we're all indigenous well, in some ways. Some of right? us are not indigenous, but that's all right. Or or at least to the globe. Well, some of us are not even indigenous to the globe, but that's okay, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of us came from somewhere else. I mean, we, we now understand that we are in... A galaxy that is, you know, part of millions of galaxies and that beings have been coming and going and some of them have been here and are here. Uh, and you can check this out on people like David Icke and other places, you know, uh, but it, it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, the idea that we're the only, quote, intelligent beings in the whole universe is laughable. It's, it seems a bit pompous. No, it's totally we don't, hysterically laughable. We can't understand... Hardly the boundaries anything. of our own universe, let alone the neighboring ones, right? So. <laughs> well, you know, we are we are ninety seven percent water, I love something that. like that, and uh, and we are basically polluting and destroying all the water. Now, is that intelligent? Right. The the whales and dolphins. I mean, try to tell us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. So anyway, you know, um, you just keep going. You know, you keep going, and as you understand more, you behave differently. And I think one of our problems is that we keep behaving the same way, thinking that things will come out differently than they have come out, and they won't. Alice, could I ask you to read a, a poem? Sure. One, would you? Uh-huh. Is there? I've got three books to choose from. Mm-hmm. Is there one that you've? You feel like Mm-mm. like reading? No, you choose. Oh no, I can't because look, it's tra- I can't. It dog-eared all these <laughs> these. I, I can't either. Why not? Well, because I have to put more thought into it than this. I can't just automatically choose something to read that I don't necessarily feel at the moment. 
Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you've had all these books all this time. I'm sure there's something <laughs> that you like that you'd like to hear read. And I'd be happy to do it. Oh, that's so kind. No. You know, it's stubborn. And and stubborn, I know. And usually I'm, because I'm like, but I'm interested to know what you will feel like reading right. at this time. Well, <clears throat> well, let's, why don't we just read the whole book? Okay. No, we don't have time, because there's, right. there's something. Let's see. Well, goodness. Let's see, folks. What I'm doing here is now I'm just looking at everything that I've... Um, that you've marked? I've marked. Um, mm-hmm. I'll read a poem that I was going to read tonight. Really? Oh, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but let's see if I can find it. I was almost going to have you read the one that I was going to read to Mom yesterday over the phone. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. I hope I haven't, by mm. dog-earing so many pages, I hope I haven't um, obscured the title. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. And I should say thanks to New Press, to Bev at New Press for sending... I like the new um, these books edition of the paperback copies. And I love that you chose to put images in here, too, photographs. Well, you know, I love the, the, the orphanage, and I love those children. And sometimes it's very nice to see them. And then there's a the gecko at oh, the end. <laughs> here's, a, here's a short one that I like, This Human Journey. Don't waste one moment trying to be someone different or someplace other than where you are. This human journey is like finding yourself in Brussels rather than in broccoli. Find out what's good about the place in Brussels as in broccoli. That must be something. Thank you. I love that one. I'm yeah, so glad me too. You chose it. Me too. That was the right poem yeah. for the right right now. Thank you. Thank you, Alice Walker, so much mm-hmm. for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you.
Michigan Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits of their labor paying off, absolutely getting a goal. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3 on your dial. I'm your host, Andrew Hausman, and we don't have quite a full house today. Only Jerry Parks and Will Rayner, but an exciting show nonetheless. And we're going to get you started off with Michigan sports, as we always like to cover here. In the intro, you heard some so Michigan soccer highlights, including your very own Jeremy Parks, who's with us on the show tonight. And myself, Jeremy Parks, and Patrick Mullen will be covering the Michigan soccer game versus the Ohio State Buckeyes later on. That kicks off at 7.30 at the Michigan Soccer Stadium, the Wolverines' last home game of the season. Definitely looking for a big win. Jeremy, what are you looking for in this game? Well, I think what you're going to see tonight is two really evenly matched soccer teams. I mean, if you look at the numbers playing against similar teams, similar goals, goal counts, similar win-loss records, really the only difference standing between Ohio State and Michigan has been that Ohio State's simply been able to score more goals in their games. And we've talked about it. I, I know pretty much every Wednesday we bring this up. Michigan's struggles in the final third to score goals. But that's been looking up as of late. They've been putting, uh, they've been putting in a lot more effort in the final third and you've been seeing them score a lot more goals because of that and getting a lot more wins so I think you saw some early season struggles really starting to improve right at the right time 